ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Across the world, there are these 12 completely different trees, each one in a completely different place. One is in the Amazon rainforest. Another is right in the middle of New York City. Another is an olive tree in the old city of Jerusalem, right next to the Damascus Gate. Another is a fir tree in the forests of Ontario. David George Haskell chose these 12 trees, some because they're special, others because they're just dead ordinary. And he returned to each one repeatedly over a period of years. David is a biologist, and he wanted to understand how these trees connect with the intricate networks of life that surround them. Above all, he came to listen to these trees, which sounds a little unusual, yes, but he discovered that once you learn how to listen to trees, the sounds that they make, raindrops on their leaves, the wind through the foliage, the subway cars that run underneath the root systems, the birds and the animals nearby, then you can understand those intricate networks so much better. And he's found that this is a world of countless untold stories hiding in plain sight. David George Haskell is the author of The Songs of Trees, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors. I spoke with David at the Byron Writers' Festival in front of a live audience. Thank you. The first one I'd like to ask you about is a tree that's deep in the Amazon in Ecuador. It's a tree and it's called a sabo tree. And this is the sound you recorded from the top of that tree. That sounds completely amazing. What is that amazing sound we're hearing there? That 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 gorgeous cacophony of sound. What's that roaring thing underneath it? The roaring of the monkeys. So this is a, a recording made at dawn from the very top of the sabo tree. This is a tree that towers over all the other trees in the rainforest in, in Ecuador. So this is in the very western part of the Amazon rainforest. The, the roaring of the, the monkeys saying, hey, we're here. This is our fruiting tree. And those other howler monkeys over there don't come over here. So they're checking in with one another. The, the other thing we're hearing is this great exaltation of biodiversity. This is the most biodiverse place that we know of on the face of the planet. And you can hear it. Of course, you can enumerate it through scientific graphs. You can, you can see it in the diversity of form of, of the trees and the birds. But this closing one's eyes. Every hour of the day, there's a different creature sounding. There are different sounds coming from the trees, the monkeys, the, 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 the leaves, the, the frogs, the insects. And so it's, in some ways, the recording needs to be heard cranked up to 10, maybe to 11, <laughs> uh, to get the full effect, because it, it really it makes your ears ring. There are so many creatures waking up and giving their song to the morning. Tell me about this tree. What does it look like and how tall is it? So the tree takes me 26 paces to circle its base. It has great big buttress roots. It's a real giant. It's covered in all sorts of vines and bromeliads and ferns. You can barely see the tree. as It's so covered with other creatures. And there are metal ladders tied to the trunk of the tree. 
And so one can ascend up these ladders up about 50 meters to the top and then sit in the very crown of the tree. And the crown is a great dome that, as I, as I said, arches over some of the other trees around it. And you can see clear to the horizon. So all around, wherever you look, is just bumpy top of the rainforest canopy with a few other sabo trees poking up. So these are little islands, if you like, sky islands in a sea of rainforest. How does the view change as you go up? Because I'm imagining it's quite dark at the, at the base of the tree, or, or not? Absolutely. At the base of the tree, it's, uh, I mean, our pupils are dilated. We can, we can hardly see, particularly at dawn and dusk. Light comes about half an hour earlier in, in, in the dawn at the very, very top of the tree. And if you linger in the top of the tree till sunset, when you descend, you're in, you're in the pitch black. And so you go through layers, the understory layer, which is very dark, then through some vines, the midstory, into the canopy of the, the main trees, most of the other trees, and then out into the top where it's really hot, really humid, all sorts of sweat bees crawling all over us. So what are, what are sweat bees? So sweat bees are tiny little bees that, that are coming to feed on the sodium in our sweat. And uh, there, there are all sorts of species through, through the Americas. These sweat bees in the Amazon, though, are so small they can get through the mesh of insect netting. And I learned this the hard way. I had netting over my head to protect me from, the, from insects. And these bees would go right through it, and they seemed to have this desire to get into my eyeballs. And so <laughs> I was driven from the treetops on several occasions through the sting of my eyes. When you're up there, aside from these howling monkeys, I don't know if you can see them or not see them, what, what other creatures are you seeing from the crown of this sabo tree? So most of the creatures you see, of course, are the green creatures, the, the green people, the trees of, of the forest, all around all sorts of different shades of green, flying overhead are macaws and toucans, are very, of course very loud and, and conspicuous. Uh, then there are nine other species of monkey. Uh, in this area. So lots of wild primates all making their own calls. And then dozens and dozens of, of insect species just in one little, say, in one bromeliad, which is a, a small epiphytic plant on, on it growing on the, the branch of the sabo tree. A few minutes of attention will reveal dozens of insect species there. So the diversity is dominated by the small little creatures. We, we tend, our senses are first drawn to the large creatures, the trees and the toucans and so forth. And then as time goes by, you, you start to see, wow, those are dr dramatic species, but their lives depend on the actions of all the, the, the small creatures of the forest. So this is one of the 12 trees you befriended, if you like, and yes. went to visit repeatedly and repeatedly. Were you looking for a really specific tree, or were you just looking for any old tree in this particular landscape? So this is a tree that I encountered uh, on an earlier trip. I had visited Ecuador with some other North American scientists, visiting with Ecuadorian scientists and environmentalists, doing an exchange program, learning about our lives and, and, and our work. And as part of that visit, I'd visited, been to this tree and climbed to the top, and it made such a deep impression on me that I knew the instant the idea of this book came along, okay, I've got to find a way back to that tree. You also recorded the sound of raindrops tapping on leaves. Is this on the same tree or nearby? Or? This is nearby the tree. These, the sounds that we will hear are from below the tree. So these are drops that have come through the tree canopy, often landing on leaves, and then the drops come down to, to the understory below.
It's like the most beautiful percussion ensemble. It's like a drum or something. It is. Each leaf is revealing the particularity of its form as the, as the drops fall down. And in the Amazon, the raindrops are particularly large uh, because the, the air there doesn't have many uh, little dust particles for rain to fall on. And so, so the, rains are, the raindrops are very big and they fall onto all these different plant species and think about different drums. Some have very large skins, some skins are very tight, some are much smaller and, and so forth. You can hear botanical diversity in the sound of the rain. And if your ear is really good, this is my is not quite this good yet. It's a life goal. And in fact, I'll present this as an as a assignment for the audience, <laughs> is to see if you can identify tree species by ear. And of course, think about all the different forms of leaves. Some are very long, stringy leaves. Others are big, flat, almost like dinner plate leaves. Those sounds are quite easy to discern. And so not only does the rain nourish the soil, it could, can nourish our aesthetic experience of the world just by going walking in the rain and listening. Oh, that's what that tree sounds like compared to, the, say, the fig tree sounds a little different from the, uh, from the banks here in the, in the front yard. Expand that acoustic experience. And, and the, the sound that we heard is a sonification of the, of the varied physicality of leaves. So this is what you mean by the songs of trees. You know, we make song by pushing air over our larynx. This is an example of song from a tree of raindrops falling like a drum onto the leaves like a drum skin. Absolutely. I mean, the song is, is the, the physical experience of sound. Some of it is from rain. Some of it is for the, from the, the sounds within wood itself. Some of it is the sounds of people or other animals around the tree. And the song is also the stories behind that. Think of a human song, there's the acoustic experience, and then there are a set of stories that led us to that acoustic experience. So trees, of course, have a, a different composer. Natural selection is the, the composer uh, rather than the human mind. Uh, but there's also a, an acoustic experience and a series of stories. Was it really hard to get that beautiful bit of music we just heard there? It is complicated, partly because wind often accompanies rain, and so you've got microphone noise issues, and our ears are very good at localizing sound. So if you're in a forest, you can hear that this tree over on your left and above you is making a particular sound. If you stick a microphone at it and then listen to the recording later, it's not clear the directionality of the microphone is a, is a lot uh, harder to, to pull out from the recording later. The other challenge, of course, is explaining to other people, why are you pointing a microphone at the grass in the rain? Oh, and so I learned very quickly, uh, going through customs and immigration to various countries, not to say, I am here to listen to your trees. <laughs> Rather, I'm here, you know, some tourism or to go hiking or so forth. <laughs> High up in the crown of that tree, that sabo tree, there's a parasitic fungus. Tell me how that fungus operates. Well, there are dozens of species of parasitic fungus. One of the more dramatic ones is one that, whose spores blow around in the wind and then land on ants. And when they land on the ant, the, the spore germinates and then a little mycelium, which is a series of fingers of fungus, grows into the ant and then eventually takes over the ant's brain, causes the ant to want to wander out to the edge of a leaf and lock its mandibles, its little jaws, onto the leaf in a very exposed place. And then the fungus kills the ant and then grows a little mushroom from the back of the ant's neck. <laughs> 
So this is a parasite. I mean, a fungus is manipulating the behavior of its host to, to help propagate its own, its own spores. And then, of course, the spores blow out of this, this little mushroom growing from the ant, and then it lands on, on other ants, and the, and the cycle of horror continues. <laughs> There's a, I've seen a picture of a parasite that will get into the mouth of a fish, devour the fish's tongue, and then it becomes the tongue. And you see, the, you can Google this, there's this little t- fish with an open mouth with a tongue with little eyes on it. When you see that, the normal human response is to go, that's evil. Right. But of course, it's not evil. How do you see that kind of parasitic behaviour? We like to put our own interpretations onto things. We see the world as we must through a human lens. And... I would imagine for a fish that has a nervous system that is akin to ours, literally akin to ours, having one's tongue eaten out is a painful experience. So there is a point of real objective suffering in that. And if suffering is objectively bad, then that, that fish is experiencing evil, if you like, within the, uh, the realm of fish suffering and experience. <laughs> and natural selection doesn't weigh those things. If the parasite can produce more offspring in that way, then that that parasite will thrive. And so the economy of nature, if you like, or the story of nature, certainly has lots of beauty and joy. It also has enormous amounts of pain and suffering. And this, as I I sit with trees and and study forests around the world, this is the thing that hits me again and again, is this great, it's almost a paradox between inexpressible joy and beauty in the world and complete fathomless brokenness. And the two things seem to be simultaneously true. And the human mind and the human emotions, we want one to win out of the other. You know, the world is either it's great or it's a terrible, terrible place. And yet both truths exist simultaneously for all creatures in all places, it seems to me. What's your understanding of how the indigenous people in the Amazon basin see this sabo tree? The sabo tree is, is the tree of life in the creation story, uh, that, and one can see why. It, it, it is a, a magnificent presence. It's covered in life, and it also gives life in very direct, tangible ways. So the, so the Warani, for example, in the Amazon use parts of the sabo for hunting equipment, and they find food there, and... Uh, So the sabo tree is also the thing that saves their lives when they get lost in the forest. It's such a large tree. When they pound on the buttress roots, it's like a big subwoofer. Boom, boom, boom. And you can try that here in Australia with the fig trees that have the buttress roots. Try pounding on that, and you've got a big flat surface that will carry low-frequency sounds out into the forest around you, whereas if you just pound on a regular tree... you'll hurt your hand and there won't be much sound there. They're quite bulbous, aren't they, these sabo trees? They they almost look like an Australian boab tree, as we call them. They they? are. I mean, they go much taller, though. So so they have a a wide base with big buttress roots, and then they go straight up into the canopy. Your journey up that tree has often been heroic. On one occasion, (laughs) you were stung by a bullet ant. There's a good reason why bullet ants are called bullet ants, aren't there? So the bullet ant is named for the... Uh, sensation that the bullet ant delivers to the human skin. And they're also about the size of a 22 bullet, so that they're quite large. But ants. it is literally like being shot, isn't it, once you've it actually is. been bitten one of these things? Well, as of yet, and I hope never to be shot, um, but, <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure who made that comparison. 
but there are people, entomologists, who have gone around the world as part of their, I guess this is what entomologists do after the workway is done to have some fun, and sample stingers and various other forms of, of insect pain. And they rank, the people who've done this rank the bullet ant at the very top <laughs> and, of their scale. But the ant fell onto me. I mean, I wasn't bothering it. I was just lean, leaning over to pick up a notebook, and it dropped down onto my neck, stung me, and then I swept it away with my hand, and it scalped my, my finger. And then, What do you mean, it sheared your finger? Yeah, so I still have a couple of little white lines on my finger from where it bit down. And the, the pain then spread up the arm into the pectoral muscle, and for a few hours, the left side of my upper torso wasn't working very well. You describe all this, the pain as it coursed through you, as like, almost like sound in a way. What kind of a sound did it remind it is. you of? And, and, and so all of us have experienced pain, of course, and pain comes in a great range of different varieties, and yet our, the language, particularly the English language, doesn't have the words to communicate that. And so we have to use, draw on other senses. And so some pain, and particularly the first uh, pain that I experienced with this ant, was very clear. It was a single tone, like a note on a big bronze bell, just boom, and ringing through my entire body. And then, it, then after a few hours, it, it resolved into more of a shriek, you know, multi-tonal thing, very confused and chaotic. Uh, so, yeah, you know, when this, I mean, this is how I experienced the world and also how I tried to communicate it through my writing, is thinking, well, what, what am I actually experiencing here? And how is it different from other sensations? And of course, I would rather be listening to the pleasing notes of rain on, on rainforest leaves than ant stings in my, in my nervous system, but they're all experiences and they're all things that we can meditate on and, and, and communicate and, and try and reach into our language to try and find a way to get that experience in, into someone's, someone else's head. It's a really, speaking of poetry, it's a really old-fashioned poetic idea to portray a single tree as a solitary individual, like, like, like a person in a way. If anything, though, your book is a complete refutation of that idea, which is a fine idea that we might want to impose on it, but it's just not real. Tell me why you think that's so wrong to see it as being like a single, solitary individual. So the notion of the individual, I think, is dying out in, in biology. The tree, of course, seems like such an individual, right? It has one trunk, just as our bodies seem to be individuals, one person sitting here in this chair. And yet from many different levels, we're not individuals, we're living communities. We exist only in relationship. That's true at a genetic level, it's true at a microbiological level, the, a tree and a, and a person. We're comprised of multiple species that interact with one another in our guts, on our skin, on, leaf, on leaves, inside roots. So the, the notion of an individual is, is a useful shorthand, but it's an inaccurate way of representing the, the truth as we understand it in biology now, which is that all these organisms are living communities and that the essence of life is relationship. It's not just that creatures are networked or in relationship. They're made from interconnection. We are made from relationship. We're not just in relationship. We are made from relationships. This is something I suppose ecologists and people in religions have been saying for however many thousands of years. The ecologists have long talked about ecosystems and biospheres and the like. What are the new sciences that are telling us about the degree of interconnectedness that you're talking about there? 
So if we use an example of a, of a leaf, uh, we can take a leaf and it seems to be a, a, a single individual, we give it a name, this is a, a maple leaf, this is a banksia leaf, and our senses see only the green, see only the shape of that leaf, but our senses are deceiving us because we can't see the microbiological world. If you take the inside of that leaf and culture it in the lab, there are hundreds of species of bacteria, dozens of species of fungi living within that leaf. And if those species are removed, the leaf cannot defend itself from drought, it becomes overrun with pathogens, it can't function. So these are not just happenstance little hitchhikers. These are essential to the function of the leaf. And of course, the same is true for our bodies. If you take away all the little bacteria and fungi and so on that are in our bodies, in our gut, on our skin, we cease to exist as biological entities. And then in the social realm, of course, for humans, if you isolate, it, isolate us from contact with all other people, we then die mentally. We, we rely on, we exist only in relationship with others. Trees don't, of course, don't have minds the way humans do. A tree mind is a much more diffuse thing, spread over its entire body. It doesn't involve a nervous system. But that tree is also continually in conversation and interaction with its surroundings. If those conversations end, the tree dies. So these are some of the things that microbiology and genetics are telling us now, this deep level of interconnectedness. Is this changing the way you think about yourself as David George Haskell, the guy who you know, lives in a certain address? And uh, uh, do you see the kind of the borders of the individual being a lot more blurry, perhaps, than you might have thought once? A while Absolutely. Ago? And this is something, of course, that religious traditions have been telling us for a long time in a, in a kind of religious, spiritual, mystical context. I find it a lot easier to relate to the sort of microbiology of this and understand it in a practical, literal, physical sense that the individual is, at many levels, an illusion. And the individual is a temporary manifestation of a series of, of, of networks and of connections. And of course, that our minds are very much sort of locked up in our little craniums and, and so forth. And yet, think about every idea in our head. It came from somewhere. We feed on the great compost of human culture. And so our conscious experience, even though it seems very individual, in some ways very lonely, it is in fact a community effort. And that's what we're doing now. We're talking with one another. We're, we're, other people are listening to the conversation. We are part of a network of connections, just as tree roots are networked to fungi and bacteria below the ground. Recently, I interviewed uh, Australian biologist Tim Lowe who wants to make the point, uh, and this is the same, same, similar point you're making, that the idea of pristine wilderness being without humans just doesn't make any sense. It's the idea that it's something that's untainted by humans is, is a nonsense. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think there's a nonsense at, at several levels. One is at a Darwinian level, we are evolved creatures just like every other creature in the world. We are in ecological relationship with other creatures. So there is no separation at a biological level between us and any other creature. And so the, the, the notion of wilderness as being somewhere where we are not implies that we somehow live in some different realm of existence. And, and I, don't, I think the, the science on that is very clear. And in fact, breakfast makes it very clear. And breathing in makes it very clear. All that oxygen or that croissant or that orange juice came from another creature. We are in 
relationship, just as, as say, a bird, you know, fig bird chowing down on, on figs is having its breakfast through the action of, of plants photosynthesizing. We do exactly the same thing. We're eating plants. At another level, I think it's a, a particularly toxic idea because it implies that those wilderness areas are places that should be cordoned off and generally the people within them removed. And so in the US, where there is wilderness written into law, people cannot live in wilderness areas. And yet these are places where people have lived for thousands of years. The only way of having a wilderness is to depopulate it by driving people off the land or through disease and then drawing a, an artificial line around it and calling wilderness. So it implies that nature is out there and humanity is on the other side of the divide and that we somehow are fallen and sullied and not worthy of nature. Whereas in fact, we belong to the community of life. We can belong in beautiful ways and in broken ways. This argument is not to say that factory effluent is always a beautiful thing, even though it is natural in a sense. So that puts the getting rid of the notion of wilderness and a separation between humanity and the rest of the community of life puts the onus back on us to have a more nuanced ethic, I think, rather than saying, oh, natural is always good and human is always bad, is to say, well, what part of nature do we wish to emulate? How are we going to live well within this community? Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Tell me about where you grew up and how, how it is you, you have arrived by accident on an Australian accent. For the last week since <laughs> arriving in Brisbane, I've been in intensive language training. Uh, and so I was born in London but raised in France, and went to college in England, and then moved to the US. I've been in the US nearly 30 years, I think, now. Yeah, both so. your parents were scientists, but what kind of scientists were they? So my uh, mother is a biologist and my father a physicist who worked with space science. And would he introduce you to the nature of his work? Absolutely. So this was back in the 1970s, of course, way beyond before the internet and so forth, when getting images of other planets was quite a novel and uh, amazing thing. And he would come back with some of the first prints, hard copy prints of the moons of, of Jupiter or of a particular look at, at Mars from satellites that had been sent out and that were sending data back to Earth that would then get that converted into, into these images. So as a, as a young boy, I thought this was marvelous to see, first of all, to have this sense of, oh, I'm seeing this before a lot of other people are. Uh, so as a, as a youngster, that was, you know, I didn't get to one-up people on much, <laughs> but I had, I had the space pictures. Uh, and to have that other perspective on this world, that we live in this universe with other planets, other moons, and those images, of course, are drawing our imagination out of this world and into other places. And that's the same thing that biologists do, of course, is drawing imagination through a microscope into the micro world, seeing all the little creatures swimming around in, in pond water or understanding how, how ants uh, 
work within within a forest. That takes a, a leap of imagination to get into those lives as well. So if your dad was very good at showing you the very, very macro, how about your mum? Was she good at introducing you to the micro? Yeah, it wasn't quite that simple, but we were, she did spend a lot of time looking at the ground, particularly at orchids. So as youngsters, we would accompany our parents out into the woods to look for rare orchids that she liked to photograph. And so I suppose his eye was uh, cast to the heavens and she was uh, looking for, for the creatures growing from the ground, sort of a little bit like the painting of, a, of Plato and Socrates. Uh, that's how I grew up in that very classical wheel wall robes and so forth. <laughs> You studied zoology at Oxford University and did your PhD, PhD at Cornell in the United States. What were you focusing on with your PhD work? So my PhD was an introduction to studies of acoustics. I was studying the evolution of bird sounds, the various sounds that birds make, and how those sounds change in different environments. Just as a bird in its, in its plumage sometimes wants to be camouflaged and sometimes wants to be very conspicuous. The same is true for sounds, that some sounds are designed to be very uh, far-reaching. Others are communication signals that should only travel a very short distance so that predators don't eavesdrop and find, find out where they are. So I made a lot of sound recordings and compared different bird species across the, the US. How much discipline and sitting alone for long periods of time does this kind of work take? I don't know about discipline, but there's a certain amount of uh, sitting alone. Um, but, I mean, sitting alone in a, in a sense, but in another sense, it's really not alone at all. So when I'm with a tree, I'm with that tree. The other creatures, I'm opening myself to a different set of connections and relationships. So I would say that it's a, a very different set of connections, of friendships, if you like. When I go back to a tree over many, many years, and I visited it hundreds of times... Of course, it's very different from a human friendship, but I do have a familiarity with that tree. And it's partly that's affection, partly it's curiosity to see what, what, what's the next chapter in the story of this tree in this location. So it's an odd kind of intimacy. Then. Absolutely. It's an intimacy that I think we have a hunger for this. We evolved in relationship with other creatures with plants and animals and so forth and when we live lives that are completely cut off from those relationships we're missing something that our nervous system is is hungry for and so in some ways I feel like I'm sort of gorging myself on what my body and nervous system is is wanting I'm fascinated by the idea that we might be really something hungry for something we don't even know we're hungry for like that. Is this how you really started to learn to listen then? Is there a learning process here in, in, in listening and hearing all these things and having the patience and almost perhaps going into a kind of meditative practice in order to hear these things? Yeah, so the meditative dimension of it is the, my commitment to return again and again to individual spots, just as someone in in a more traditional meditation, might return again and again to the breath or to a sacred image, gaze on a sacred image. Here I am returning and again and again to a particular spot on the earth and trying to open my senses to it. The sense, and certainly over the years, I found it's easier to, um, to let some of the thoughts go and to actually attend to my senses, turn on the apps that came pre-installed in my body. It's amazing. They connect directly into my consciousness, unlike anything on my phone. And so, particularly with listening, and I do this a lot with my students, is sometimes go through a practice of naming every sound 
and then letting that sound go and listening for the sound that was behind the first one. Because our senses tend to, and our mind gloms onto the most obvious. But in any space, particularly outdoors, there are dozens of sounds. We attend to maybe one or notice one of them. But to have a practice of saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I heard the car, now what other sound am I hearing? Now what other sound behind that and behind that? Then the next thing I invite students to do is to let go of the names. What is the physical sensation of that sound? How will you describe it? How can you be in the presence of that sound without having to name it, oh, that's a car? Because naming it a car then allows us to pigeonhole it and to get out of the experience. In fact, cars have all sorts of sound. It's the sound of tires on wheels and different types of engines and so forth. There's all kinds of physicality in there that get uh, boxed away and suppressed by the practice of naming. This is, where you, this is what you brought into your first book, The Forest Unseen, where you focused on a single square meter of forest for a whole year. Tell me about this square of forest and where it was and what was remarkable about it or not remarkable about it. Yeah, so the, the square forest is in, in the mountains of Tennessee and it's a deciduous forest, quite cold in, in the winter, very icy and cold and then hot and humid in the summertime. I picked the square meter just by wandering through the woods until I found a rock that looked like it was flat enough for me to be able to sit on it with some degree of comfort for a, the better part of a year. And the, the area in front of that became the focus for my observations through the year. I just returned again and again to that spot with minimal equipment. So just a hand lens, uh, sometimes some binoculars, a little notebook, to try to pay attention to what was happening in this patch of forest. And I lived in that part of Tennessee, and so I knew many of the stories of the forest, but I wanted to go, let the forest teach me, to go a little beyond what I thought I knew. And almost every time I went there, there was some creature doing something or some, uh, some interaction happening that I knew just the edge of the story. And then I would have scurried back to the library and read up about what other people had, had written, say scientists who'd studied these processes. So I let the forest guide my curiosity and my reading list. So if I were to seek out that square patch of land, I know what would happen. I mean, initially anyway, I'd sit there and I'd look at it and I'd see what, dead leaves? probably compacted dirt, I'd see maybe some roots of a tree, some rocks, and maybe some bugs. So the next thing you would notice is, I've been sitting here 10 minutes, this is so boring. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, I mean, you know, I've seen it, but why am I here, why am I doing this? And that signal, this is boring, is a little gift from my mind. The thought, this is boring, is saying, I'm not paying attention here. I need to turn on my senses. And so the next process is, oh, well, what does it smell like here compared to yesterday? Or how does the smell change after the rain? And why is that? What's, what's that telling me about this place? Who are those little creatures? And why is that ant attacking the other one here? Some drama. I mean, it's a real, when you start paying attention to the little <laughs> guys, it's, I mean, it's soap opera out there. Uh, and I mean, it's a soap opera with a, with a lot of, Sex, a lot of death. I mean, the things that really drive the narrative forward. Uh, have you been, literally been sitting there going, holy crap, that's amazing. Are you, uh, seriously, are you doing Absolutely, that? yeah. I yeah. mean, particularly when creatures are killing each other. Yeah. There, or one is trying to, you know, you say a caterpillar is trying to make it from one side of the, this, this square meter to the other. 
and there are a dozen ants jumping onto it, trying to pull out its little tufts of defensive hair, sink their mandibles into it. By the time the ant reaches the, uh, the caterpillar reaches the tree and starts climbing up and escapes, I can finally breathe again. I realize I haven't <laughs> breathed for the last two minutes. This is captivating. And, and of course, there are other caterpillars being dragged back to the nest that didn't make it. And so this is the, the, the drama. And of course, people who make uh, nature documentaries know that the drama is, is what really grabs us. It tends to be you know, the lion dragging down a, a great big you know, mammal. But this is happening in the micro world all the time. Like I say, there's 12 trees you've visited repeatedly throughout your, the course of writing this book. Uh, the Sabo tree in, in the Amazon basin, we mentioned there's a, a, a fir tree you visited in the boreal forests of Ontario in Canada. But you also went to New York City to visit a tree there, a Bradford pear tree. And this is the sound you recorded while you were there. That rumbling's the subway? Yeah, so this is a sound recording made in an unusual way. I didn't put a regular microphone against the tree. I put a little sensor against the tree, a little electronic device that records vibration in the wood of the tree itself. So what we're hearing are the sounds, the sound waves that are coming up through the ground into the tree itself. So this is the, what the interior of the tree is experiencing. And the rumble was the subway, which runs in a tunnel right under the tree. It's a story, you know, a story or two below the tree, down below. So we heard a subway train coming in. Early on, we also heard a couple of cheep, cheep. Those are house sparrows. Uh, so some of their sounds are penetrating into the very top surface of the wood. So this is the, the vibrations of the city are part of the interior life of this tree, part of the, the, the experience of growing cells in the, in the pear tree on a sidewalk. And this is on a very busy sidewalk, intersection of two major streets in the middle of Manhattan. This is in Manhattan, this tree. Why this tree? Why did you want to go there? So I wanted various chapters of the book look at the ways that people and trees have our stories interconnected with one another in different parts of the world. Some of them are in places like the Amazon. Others are in places where the human imprint is very, very significant, and a lot of people would say, there is no nature here. I'm trying to sort of refute that and say, indeed, there is nature here. Who built the city? Uh, great ape built the city, so the city is natural in that sense, but there are also many other species like these pear trees. This particular pear, I wandered through the streets after visiting a, a conference in, in New York to look for a very ordinary-looking street tree. There's nothing ma maje particularly majestic or grand about this tree. It doesn't have a dramatic backstory. It's a tree right next to a newsstand, just like hundreds of thousands of other trees in New York City, standing on the, on the side of a street with you know, dirty water running down the gutter there and trash around its bottom. And, and uh, So it's a street tree like many others, and I wanted to understand the city through its stories by going back again and again to visit with the tree. Is it a native tree to the area? As with many street trees, it is uh, an exotic. It's non-native. This calorie pear is originally from China, where it grows in very um, tough soils, inhospitable soils, dry or salty or soils with heavy metals. 
which makes it pre-adapted to live within cities, which are very challenging environments, of course, for trees to, to survive in. The, the tree found its way there through a horticultural fashion in the 1960s, 70s. This tree produces lots of blossoms in the springtime. And so people say, well, there's a pretty tree. Let's put it all over the cities. But it turns out that it then breaks in ice storms. So city tree, the people, arborists don't like it because it creates a lot of trouble. And it also has now escaped cultivation and is spreading in all sorts of uh, natural plant communities, particularly in the southern US. So it's regarded by ecologists as a trash tree in some contexts. But here in the city, it was providing all sorts of benefits for people. And it certainly wasn't spreading anywhere there because there's nowhere for its seeds to sort of land. It's all concrete around it. So, it, so its value really depends on context. You know, in, in a native forest, say in Tennessee, it would have a, a different set of values. It wouldn't be a very productive member of that community, I would say. But in, in, the, in the city, it, it provides a lot of benefits. How has it responded to all that subway reverberation? So the reverberation actually changes the, the structure of the wood. So when a tree is shaken or flexes in the wind, it toughens up its wood. And the roots grow extra strands of cellulose and lignin so that the roots become a little tougher. And so the, the tree, in some ways, has taken the thrum, the sound of the city, into its body. And literally clinging more tightly to the earth there than a tree growing away from the subway vibrations. What did the tree tell you about the social behavior of New Yorkers on the street and in the shade? So on a sidewalk without trees in New York, the only option is to keep moving. You just, if you stop or turn around, you will get mowed over by the great sea of pedestrian traffic um, moving down the sidewalk. City streets that have trees planted along the edge diversify the possibilities for movement. They create physical barriers and places with shade where people gather and talk or they you know, make a phone call or just check on the newspaper and so forth. And so that the tree actually allows human social networks to have connections, a more diverse set of connections than would be possible without the trees. And in the summertime, the shade is a big part of that. It's about 20 degrees cooler under the tree than on the sidewalk away from the tree. And the, but it also does it by changing how we move. And this turned out to be a, a, a gendered space and a raced space. I never saw a white man under that tree. The role of the white male in New York is to mow down everyone else. Uh, so how we move is highly dependent on who we are, how we perceive, what the cultural norms are of who has to get out of the way of whom. And of course, that is highly gendered. It's highly structured by race. And what trees on streets do is they allow some of those rules to have different outcomes. They you know, can't change the overall set of rules that people are operating under, social rules in, in the city, but it does allow connections and movement patterns that are not possible on other streets. This isn't hugely different from sitting at the top of a sabo tree and hearing howling monkeys go, ugh, at one another, is it? Not hugely yeah, so, different, a different well, kind of ape, that's all. Those howling monkeys are not so distant in an evolutionary sense from, from us. I mean, we are, we are their cousins, literally. These are the same kind of social patterns, the same kind of social connections that are happening below ground in the roots or up in the top of the sabo tree are happening on a street in Manhattan. It's just that the number of species is much reduced. And there's one dominant species, and that's, that's Homo sapiens.
One of the trees you feature in your book you found in an airtight plastic bag in Scotland. Tell me about this tree. All sorts of delights in plastic bags in Scotland. Mm. <laughs> I'm thinking of fish and chips. <laughs> yeah. So, um, this is a tree that is now present in the world as a pieces of charcoal. And these pieces of charcoal are 10,000 years old. And the reason they're in plastic bags is because they're the archaeological remains of, of the first fires known by people moving into this landscape after the Ice Age retreated. So Scotland was covered in, in ice during the Ice Age. The glaciers and ice retreated. And then people moved up into the area. Into, of course, it was a very cold, challenging environment. And the only reason they could do that was because they were in relationship with trees, and particularly with hazel trees. So all of these little pieces of charcoal are hazel wood that they use to, to heat their huts and to cook their food. And then the nuts, the, the broken uh, nut shell of hazelnut. And this was before the agricultural revolution reached this part of the world. And hazel, the, the, these tree nuts, form the calorific foundation of the society. And archaeologists refer to that particular period, both in Scotland and in other parts of Northern Europe, as the age of hazelnuts. And the trees may have gotten there with the help of people. So people and trees arrived at about the same time. And of course, people were smart. They knew what they needed to bring with them to colonize the landscape. And so the, all the forests of Northern Europe were born in relationship to people. Now, it turns out right next to this ancient campfire, 10,000-year-old campfire, is a modern campfire, a coal-fired power plant. And right next to that is a proposed, even more modern campfire, which is a place where pelleted wood imported from overseas will be used as a replacement for coal. So in this one little patch of Scotland, you can see thousands of years of human relationship to trees through fire. And of course, this is a hugely important question now as we try to transition away from fossil fuels uh, onto fuels that have less of an impact on climate. And it, of course, it's very challenging because our economy has been largely run on fossil fuels. And in Scotland, they're experimenting with trying to find a way to use uh, you know, fast-growing trees to, to meet those needs. It's very controversial environmentally, you know, which is the better trajectory. But it's, what's fascinating to me is that all these places are present in exactly the same spot. So the people who were there 10,000 years ago faced the same challenges in some ways that we do, how to power our lives with the help of this very concentrated stored sunlight, which is what wood is. And then, of course, coal is an even more concentrated version of that. So, so with this tree, this charcoal in plastic bags, uh, with the sabo tree, for example, and the pear tree, this is the interconnectedness of things through space. Are you showing a kind of interconnectedness through time, through this charcoal? Absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that we miss when we look at modern-day ecosystems, is the, the historical trajectory of how we got to the places we are now. And so, for example, the forests in North America the forests in Northern Europe, forests here in Australia, did not appear de novo in the state that they are now. These are, these are forests that have evolved through time and often evolved in relationship with people. And that, that has involved fire, it's involved clearing of land, and it's taken different forms in different parts of the world. But understanding some of that deeper history, I think, is important. And then looking even before humans evolved, 
One of the trees that I looked at is a fossil that's 30 million years old, long before humans ever evolved or even most primates had evolved, that shows us the signature of ancient climate change. So our current challenges are part of a very long, long story. You've been in Australia for just over a week now on the East Coast. What are you hearing? I am hearing a world that is just extraordinary. I have never been in a place with such a unique soundscape. So the trees, of course, have their own forms. The wind is, is, uh, has its own sound as it comes through those trees. And then the, the birds, of course, are all in their own different bird families than the ones that I'm used to in, in North America. And so now I hear, but, and I can't even place it to order or family. Whereas normally when I'm traveling in the Americas, I, it may be a new bird that I'm not familiar with, but I know roughly what it is. Here, is that a minor? Is it a parrot? Is it a, a friar bird? I'm trying to tune my ear in to the, to the, to the rhythms, the, the timbre, the, the texture of the sounds here. So, the, of course, Australia and, and the, the lands around Australia have had their own evolutionary trajectory for a very long time, part of the ancient Gondwana land story. And that's left a signature on the soundscape that is really different from other, other continents. Do you think that may be why when Australians travel, it might be a factor of, that increases homesickness in a way that we don't even register, perhaps? Yeah, we absolutely imprint on the, both the smells of home and the sounds of home, the sights of home, the way the light is, and the, the, the greater the break in all those. And many of the connections are subconscious, of course, we're not aware from it. The, the greater the break, the more that feeling of, of both of novelty, which is really exciting, but also of homesickness, of feeling, wow, this is alien, I somehow don't quite belong here. And so, I, um, I mean, I can't presume to speak for the Australian experience, but certainly coming here as someone who's experiencing that excitement of novelty, I'm not hearing any sounds that make me feel like, oh, this is comfortable and home, I understand what's happening here. And part of that is the assessment of, when I'm walking in the forest, of what's safe and what isn't. So in, in Tennessee, uh, in the forest that I'm very familiar with, I know particular alarm calls, or I know with the sound in the wind, if it's doing this, there's a particularly damaging rainstorm coming, and I should get out of there if I can. Here, I, I don't understand the, the meaning and the, the message in a lot of the sounds. And it's, you know, it's not a frightening experience most of the time, but if I were out alone in the woods at night, that would be a lot more frightening because I don't know how to interpret and to read, whereas being alone out in the woods in Tennessee is, is in some ways very comforting to me. I know these sounds, they're familiar, and yet when I've taken people, say, who, who've come from cities that aren't, that aren't familiar with those sounds, it's odd, it's weird. They think they're going to get killed by the crazy Tennessee hillbillies and so forth. Like, no, those are just the frogs. <laughs> the, the hillbillies come later. I have so enjoyed this conversation oh, you. with you. It's thank been an you. absolute joy, David. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank David George Haskell. Thank you. David George Haskell's latest book is called Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations 
on the ABC Listen app.